0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Marco Santori is the president and chief legal officer of blockchain, the easy way to send, receive, store, and trade digital currencies. In this conversation, we covered what his original conversations with federal regulators were like, how the SAF document became so popular, why ICOs have essentially disappeared in the US, and what Marco believes is the most optimistic view of crypto's potential impact on the world. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you like it as well. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. If you're an investor, lawyer, accountant, or entrepreneur and want to attend exclusive events and dinners, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Before we get into this episode, I want to give a quick shout out to one of our sponsors, Saluna is a blockchain computing company powered by its own renewable energy. The team is planning to build a 900 megawatt facility on top of a 37,000 acre location, one of the best wind sites in the world in southern Morocco. You'll hear more from them later in this episode, but I'd love if you could go check out their website. You can find them at saluna.io. All right, guys, I'm super excited about this episode. We've got uh, Marco here. Uh, you've been in crypto for a really long time, and uh, you've got all kinds of uh, interesting perspectives. So thank you so much for coming and sharing with us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Absolutely. Um, all right, so for those that don't know, let's just go through a quick background um, on you, and then we can talk about how, uh, how you originally got into crypto early on.
1: Yeah, happy to do it. So uh, my name's Marco Santori. I'm the president and chief legal officer uh, at blockchain, blockchain is the world's largest software platform for digital assets. Though you probably you probably know us because of the wallet. You probably know us because we have almost thirty million wallets. Although today we may have actually crossed that mark, but um, thirty million wallets all around the world. We aren't like an exchange. We're not like the custodial providers. We are a place where you don't really go to speculate. You go to actually use this stuff. You go to to hold and buy to to hold and send and actually. Um, you know, use functional cryptocurrencies. Got
0: it. Um, and, and so let's talk about pre-blockchain, right? So your are 2011, 2012, originally Discover Crypto?
1: Yeah, 2012, late okay. late 2012, I helped form a, a, a currency trading fund for people who were, they weren't doing anything interesting. They were like shorting the euro or something. And, but at the end of the day, you know, they, they joke with me and they say, oh, Marco, you know, ha ha ha, what we're really doing is trading crypto. Well, back then they just said Bitcoin. Um, and back then it was, it, it was a joke. There really weren't that many people trading Bitcoin, um, certainly not successfully. Um, but they referred a client to me who actually was. And that person referred somebody to me and that person referred somebody to me. And I started posting on Bitcoin Talk. If you've, if, you've <laughs> ever been on, if you've ever been on Bitcoin Talk, you can still see the tweets. They are, they are totally cringeworthy. It's, you know, hi, my name is Marco Santori and I'm a lawyer and I want to learn more about Bitcoin. Um, Epic, <laughs> and and word got out there was a lawyer uh, there, w- there was a lawyer in Bitcoin, and uh, well, I then I was the chairman of the regulatory affairs committee for the Bitcoin Foundation back when that back when that was a thing. Um, I was the among the first team of I think five or six of us who went down to D.C. and explained to the federal government, this is Bitcoin, this is how it works, this is. Um, this is the blockchain. And we, and we actually projected a copy of blockchain back then, blockchain.info, mm-hmm. uh, up on the screen and took them through a transaction and said, this is a Bitcoin address. It has an associated private key, you know, and and took them through the whole thing. Um, and the look of wonder and confusion and disgust <laughs> in some of uh, these regulators and policymakers' faces back in 2013, it's something that, that has stuck with me for a long time. but. Um, after that, I was a partner at Pillsbury and a partner at Cooley, two global law firms where, um, at Cooley, I worked on the, on the SAFT project framework, which we published with Protocol Labs. Um, and then recently I, I left private practice. I, I, <laughs> I, caught the virus <laughs> as, as you like to say, and, uh, I went all in crypto and I'm a, now I'm the chief legal officer at blockchain. So it, what's fascinating to me
0: is in 2013, the federal government, right, is actually listening to... Um, private citizens describe a digital currency, what it is, how it works, what the advantages, disadvantages are, etc. And this is really before most people in crypto today even knew what this stuff was. So the federal government was actually pretty far ahead in terms of at least being aware and hearing about it. But it sounds like they weren't very receptive, right? So so they were listening, but maybe they weren't actually hearing what was going on.
1: Well, so... To start from the from 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 the first principle, the U.S. was in 2013 and and remains f- the farthest ahead on crypto policy uh, almost anywhere in the world, and and that's a that's a crazy thing to hear. It's mm-hmm. certainly a crazy thing for me to say because I can't say that about a lot of places in U.S. policy. But um, crypto is one of those places where the U.S. federal government um, got this stuff. It understood the uh, what this stuff can do and took reasonable approaches to it before any any government did. And now we have Japan with a license, South Korea considering a license. Um, Some some places, some smaller countries, geographically smaller, have jumped ahead um, because they can move faster. Right. But here in the US, we've got federal government. Plus, we have fifty four well fifty three other sovereigns that we have to deal with. Um, So things can move a little bit more slowly here. And it has. It's been a long conversation. But, you know, I I got I got I have to say so far, the federal government has has not taken crazy positions Mm -hmm. uh, on crypto. Yeah,
0: they've actually been very measured. They've taken their time to understand this stuff. And and, uh, especially when you compare them to, you know, China or other uh, jurisdictions where, it's, you know, one week they're banning something, the next week they're not. And just the uncertainty, I think, um, is one thing. Right. So if you don't know what the position is, um, that's the risk that you're have to deal with but i think it's even worse when there is um kind of the the jarring or or chaos of uh the regulation actually changing on on a pretty consistent or frequent basis
1: yeah absolutely and today right everyone's talking about um the sec and the cftc and i have my thoughts on on why that is and how that happened but back in 2013 nobody Nobody was talking about the SEC's involvement in crypto Mm -hmm. or the CFTC's involvement in crypto. And not just because, you know, certain internal champions in those agencies weren't there yet, but really because... Bitcoin was just money. And that's all there was.
0: Well, so, so what were people talking about? Right. So they're not talking about securities. They're not talking about kind of all of the things that are being talked about today. What was that conversation? Was it just I want to understand Right, I'm a regulator and I want to understand this stuff or was it some deeper conversation?
1: There there were two things that regulators were worried about. One, money laundering. You yep. wanted to make sure that illicit activity wasn't happening on these financial networks and there weren't any black holes uh, where the government didn't have didn't have visibility. The second thing was prudential concerns. They wanted to make sure that at the end of the day, um, your uncle or your aunt or whomever you were sending money to got their money. Got uh, those are the two very different concerns under the law, and the federal government mostly was concerned with preventing illicit activity, mm-hmm. anti-money laundering. The states mostly don't play in that sandbox. They're, 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 they're not concerned with AML, with the exception of New York and maybe a little bit in Arizona. States are mostly concerned with making sure that the people who are supposed to um, who are who are supposed to get their money at the end of the day, like in the case of like MoneyGram or Western Union, get their money at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was two very, very different, different concerns um, competing against each other. And of course, crypto entrepreneurs caught in the middle.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, last question about this, but when you guys go down and you have these conversations, there's probably some follow-up conversation or whatever, and you guys leave, what's the feeling among the pro-crypto private citizens, right? Is it, man, this is really depressing. These people don't care. Is it frustration? Do you leave actually encouraged? Kind of what what was that reaction to to those meetings and conversations?
1: It depends who you speak to. The... When when you're on social media and you're reading about the next thing happening in crypto in D.C., it always seems to be something. Yep. But in reality, nobody in D.C. is talking about crypto. Mm -hmm. There's very few people there. There's very few people who are concerned with it. There are very few people um, that uh, that it's on the radar. There are staffers that are very deep in this stuff, but there's maybe a dozen of them on the hill. Um, There are great uh, policy shops. Like Coin Center, um, there are new trade organizations forming. But as far as regulators and policymakers, well, I should say as far as policymakers go, like the legislature, mm-hmm. right, Congress, not a whole lot of discussion about this stuff. There's a few different bills pending, but in the day to day, it's not very popular. Regulators, though, there was a point there when, you know, half of some of these agencies resources were dedicated to making a statement in this industry. Mm hmm. Do you think that the policymakers aren't focused on it
0: because of like an opportunity cost? So there's just so much other things going on that that this is so small today compared to the other stuff?
1: That's that's really all there is. I mean, over the last um, over the last few years, we've entered a period of political discourse in this country that has overshadowed so much of the rest of our public lives that, um, you know, crypto hasn't been as high on the radar as it could have been. Mm hmm.
0: And um, Okay, so, so that's super interesting, right? Because basically clients brought you Bitcoin and you start kind of understanding it, etc. What was the reaction inside of the law firms at the time? Right? So, <laughs> so the policymakers, you know, that, I, I got that. That's kind of a, a natural reaction from them. The law firms, you know, these are clients, right? You're, you're supposed to be trying to help them accomplish their business goals and things like that. But are there people in a law firm that are, you know, this stuff is illegal and we should not play in it? Or was everyone pretty
1: open-minded? What, what was that like? Uh, maybe I was really lucky, but each of the three law firms that I worked at that had uh, where I had a crypto practice um, were encouraging, supportive. They wanted me to do more. They were happy that I was out when I was, you know, when I was first starting out um, in crypto. They were kind of surprised that we now had like a fintech practice. Mm-hmm. Right? We we went from litigating. These laws to actually advising on them, which is a jump that you know not all lawyers make. Um, and then by the time I got to Cooley, I mean we we had built one of the biggest practices in the industry, um, and it was sort of a thought leadership practice in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, and there were there were risks around that, And um, that you know people there there are always people who don't want who don't want to upset things who they don't want to upset the apple cart. But I got to tell you, there are very few of those in the law firms I worked at. And, and by the time I got the Cooley, we were, we were all just thrilled to be able to do this kind of work. Um, the kind of work that most lawyers never get to do.
0: Absolutely. Um, all right. So as you're kind of working through you know, a couple of years there, um, ICOs, utility tokens, and uh, eventually the SAFT all pop up. Because previously it had just been Bitcoin only, right? And so now we get to... Oh, there's Bitcoin and there's this other stuff. What's kind of your early experience with ICOs and, and the idea of a utility token or non-Bitcoin type, um, you know, assets?
1: You know, back in 2013, we just called this stuff Bitcoin 2.0, <laughs> <laughs> and there, nobody was talking about crypto generally. The cryptographers were not yet up in arms for losing their uh, their their precious crypto namesake um, to the to the cryptocurrency people. The the thought was that maybe one day you'll be able to use Bitcoin for something other than money. That was that was the baseline thought that, you know, you can we call these entries in the blockchain, we call them Bitcoins, but are they UTXOs? You know, uh, what are they? They're nothing. They're just entries that, that, we, that we happen that are scarce and we happen to call them money. Um, and there was a thought that one day it could be more than that. There was a thought that you could use these entries, you could call them something else. And so um, the first one of the first implementations of that was something called colored coins, which is a, a, an unfortunate name, I think. But the idea being that you could color, if, if you could imagine a coin, a physical coin, you could color it in purple, right? After you've taken it out of the bag of coins and throw it back into the bag, you'd always be able to trace it no matter where it went. And those were no longer fungible, sort of non-fungible coins. Now we call those NFTs, non-fungible tokens um when we implement them on ethereum but um back then that was still like sci-fi that that was mm-hmm. science fiction and there were some implementations of that like um it mat- colored coins master coin um and what were people using
0: the colored coins right so somebody comes up with hey we should color the coins and and kind of create these non-fungible um assets but what was the thought process behind creating them
1: I think it was mostly experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, these people didn't really know where the meets and bounds were. They didn't know what this was going to be, what applications, what use cases this was going to be good for. So um, the, 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 the simple ability to do it was kind of mind blowing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting how uh, some of these ideas already in a short, you know, five, six year cycle have already kind of gone away and come back. Right. So non-fungible tokens being a, a <laughs> prime example of, uh, you know, it's popular in 2013, 2014, they go away. Uh, and then all of a sudden they come roaring back, backed by VCs, you know, and kind of now the new hot raging thing again. And maybe they're not as new as people kind of originally thought. Um, all right. So, so let's talk about uh, ICOs and the utility tokens. Right. So we go from the colored coins to eventually somebody says, hey, I'm going to create a new blockchain that has differences or improvements to it. And I'm going to raise capital for it via a new funding mechanism. What is the the reaction there? Um, you know, from your perspective.
1: Well, I think the the fundamental innovation was that people realized it was more than just Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And if you know, people ask me why I think the price run up of 2017 happened, and I usually tell them I don't have a whole lot of thoughts on price. I don't have a whole lot of thoughts on 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 speculation. Um, and, but this is one of those exceptions and that I, I, I do know why that run-up happened and that's because people realized there was more to this than just Bitcoin. And that's not to diminish the impact of Bitcoin, it's to highlight uh, the public perception around the industry. Um, and so when people started to realize there was more to this than just this one asset, this, this one money that, pe- that some people preferred to government money for certain, for certain applications, um I think that expanded a lot of people's minds. They started to realize, "Oh my gosh, this technology is actually r- really encompassing. It could it could change almost everything that we do." And um look, it, it it sounds trite now, but the introduction of smart contracts changed the way that people think about blockchains. It was no long blockchains were no longer just a vehicle for like libertarian money, right? They were a vehicle for implementing Business logic in a trustless way, um, and that meant a lot of different things. It, for example, um, you know, for example, creating tokenized assets, mm-hmm. but also being to programmatic but also being able to programmatically do things with those assets in a way that you never had to really trust some central intermediary. That that brought the power of Bitcoin outside of just the world of money and into the world of well, anything that has a value.
0: Absolutely. And, and so where's the SAF come out of this? Right. So does protocol labs come to you guys and say, we need some sort of uh, standardized documentation in order to empower the funding of all this. Is this something where you guys are working with a single client and say, hey, well, well, we need to make sure that we're really thoughtful about this. Kind of how does that originate um, fr- from an idea and then eventually how do you go and in, in, in build it?
1: Well, um, protocol labs came to me as a client and um, I advised them on, on, a number of different, on a number of different matters. And one of them was um, the, uh, the sale of this instrument that people were using. We didn't invent it. People were using this thing called a SAFT, Simple Agreement for Future Tokens, which was of course just a simple agreement for future equity that somebody had hel- held down control and pressed F and replaced um, equity with tokens. So originally,
0: there's no, there's really no innovation other than swapping out the word equity for token.
1: <laughs> That's it. That's the end of the conversation. Yeah. No, we we saw this thing and we thought, wow, this is. A lot of people are using this, and it's 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 kind of toxic in a lot of ways. <laughs> if if you look at this document, there, um, it just didn't make a whole lot of operational sense in the way that the way that people were using it. That said, we had this notion that maybe it 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 could if we used it correctly, and so. You have to understand the SAFT in context. uh, Well, the SAFT project in context. It was the first self-regulatory reaction to this rash of pre-functional token sales, which um, people colloquially called ICOs, Mm -hmm. initial coin offerings. People came up with a bigger and better Ethereum or a bigger and better Bitcoin, something they thought was going to be better than what's out there. And in order to raise money, what they were doing was just Selling this very basic token, which was, you've, if you're familiar with the expression, a can of trading sardines, it didn't actually do anything. The sardines weren't actually good for eating. They were just mm-hmm. good for trading. And so it gave rise to this speculative frenzy that when we looked at this, we thought, wow, there's actually investor protection risks involved in these pre-functional token sales. We think that these aren't just you know consumer goods. They're people that are buying these things for speculation. There's nothing wrong with that, but you know there are laws about things that are buying, uh, people who are buying speculative goods that are reliant on the efforts of the issuer of that good. They're the securities laws. And so the SAFT project, uh, well, I should say this, the SAFT framework generally says, look, you can use this very simple document. You should negotiate it. It should include the additional investor protections that you want and it, you should apportion risk. But at the end of the day, you should use it and sell it as a security because that's that's what the thing is. When someone buys this document, this SAFT, um, well, they're buying it with the expectation of profit yep. from the efforts of others, from the efforts of the issuer. And if you know in the United States, that is, of course, the Howey test for for what what uh, is an investment contract and therefore a security. But then, once those tokens, once those tokens work, once they actually are put to their intended purpose, once um, once anyone who buys them is no longer reliant on the efforts of the person who issued it, well, eh, I mean, there are risks there, but they're not investor risks, are they? They're, they're like the risks of someone who buys a used car. It's like, yeah, maybe the engine doesn't work, but that's not because someone failed to expend their efforts. And so you need disclosures around like their finances. Like, Who cares if Ford goes bankrupt next year? The question is, does my engine work? Um, and so there, there are consumer protection laws that you should apply at that point. So that, 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 was, the, that was the breakdown of the, of the SAFT framework. And we released the SAFT project white paper um, around this time last year. And uh, about a month later, we stopped seeing ICLs in the United States. The SAFT framework, um, for better or for worse, became uh, a market standard in mm-hmm. the U.S.,
0: yeah, it, you've used a uh, a terminology uh, pre-functional token sale, right, or pre-functioning token sale, um, and my guess is that you're using that in in a very intentional way because that describes a token um, having to do with the howie test and, and things yeah. compared to if I just go on you know a Coinbase and buy Bitcoin, for example, right. Where do regulators in the United States right now, from your perspective, shake out on the difference between that pre-functioning token and then the circulating or functioning token, Mm -hmm. you know, on a network, I'd say like an Ethereum today, um, where we are?
1: Yeah. So um, after we released, after we published the white paper, a month later, the ICO started to kind of trickle off and disappear. Um, and then a few months, well, several months after that, actually, just just this summer, um, the, uh, the director of the Division of Corporation Finance at the SEC um, gave a speech, which was not officially the SEC's, the SEC's position. It isn't law and it's, it's, it's not even binding on the SEC. But he said, look, there's been a lot of talk around what is and isn't a security in the world of crypto. Here's what I think personally. And what he said is important, but it's also important how he said it, right? And then he, he says, look, this, is, this isn't law, but look, realistically, the head of the the director of the Division of Corporation Finance is a pretty important guy, and it's up to him in his official capacity to determine what is and is not a security from the SEC's perspective. Um, and this is what he said. He said, yeah, your pre-functional, post-functional distinction um, is right, but... It's actually not the whole story. There's there's more to it. There's a question. There's, there's, there's a whole litany of things. There's a whole litany of questions you can ask to try to figure out where your risk of being uh, a security is. Um, and some of those things included how many people actually own the token? Is it just concentrated in the hands of a few people, a, a few whales, right, that are going to dump on a bunch of retail investors later? Um, did you sell it using speculative language. You try to whip up a frenzy with a countdown timer and, you know, all these things we see in ICOs. And, um, and there's, there's a few more you can, you can, you can check it out. Um, you can check out the text of the speech online. Um, but you know, I think people today are still, are still, they still want more. I personally think we've, we've gotten as much as, as, as we could really ask for in, in such a difficult determination. But, um, SEC has said uh, recently, I think just just yesterday or two days ago, I should say, Bill Hinman again, the director <laughs> of, of the Division of Corporation Finance, just said, exactly. actually, you know what, we gave you a lot. We we gave you this heuristic, this sort of, uh, you know, this this fuzzy this fuzzy list of questions to help you think about this. But we're going to give you some plain English guidance. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't know when that will come. I uh, I don't think anybody I. Maybe the SEC itself doesn't even know uh, precisely when it'll come, but it's an important question, and it's not wrong that they've taken their time to answer it.
0: Yeah, and, and he made it sound when he said this that it's near term. That could be weeks, months. You know, I don't think, to your point, anyone really actually knows, but um, it sounded like the way I read it is they hear that people are saying, we want more clarity, Yeah, right? And some of that's coming from institutional investors. Some of that's coming from projects that want to actually, um, you know, Kind of push the envelope in a compliant way um, but, but but I do think it's interesting he has kind of led the charge in some of the public comments right given where you know he sits in the organization um, how does the SEC and, and other uh, Western you know, North American regulators compare to the rest of the world right so we talked about their approach in terms of they're definitely more tempered and and kind of patient and and maybe focused on learning first before they actually act. But from an actual regulatory guidance standpoint, mm-hmm. do they look at it differently or is it just their approach is different, but everyone's coming to the same conclusion around this stuff? Yeah. This
1: is, this is more a question about the law than it is about the regulators who interpret and apply the law. Okay. Uh, Cause in the, in the United States, the sec, you know, isn't, isn't a judge. They're not, they're not the courts. They are plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. Now, they're much more powerful than other plaintiffs, right? Um, but the question is really about what is the law in the U.S. versus what is the law abroad, and and it's it's an important it's it's an important question because when it comes to money services laws, like um, you know anti money laundering and consumer protection and that kind of thing, everyone around the world they are pretty uniform on mm-hmm. this. We have something called the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, that ensures the, uh, harmony and commonality among those laws. That doesn't I mean, there are analogous bodies in the world of securities, but in the US, the the perimeter that you draw around what is a security is enormous as compared to the rest of the world, because we have this notion of an investment contract, which doesn't exist in most other jurisdictions. There are things called collective investment schemes in other jurisdictions, but um, they're much more restrictive because other jurisdictions generally have what's called a positive listing system. They say, look, these eight things are securities and they stop. In the US, we say these 30 things are securities. Also, there's this catch-all called the investment contract. Then most of most of these, most of these uh, tokens we argued in, in the white paper that were sold pursuant to ICOs. Um, well, I should say, in most of these ICOs, there was an investment contract created. Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. And, and so we'll come back to this idea of an investment contract in a second. But before we do that, let's talk about uh, blockchain and kind of your role there, right? So you're in private practice, you've got all these clients, you're, you know, one of the foremost um, thought leaders when it comes to applying the existing laws to this new technology, new industry. Why leave? Why, why kind of um, get out of, uh, of the direct legal private practice and, and uh, go more on the operator side?
1: you know as 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 you like to say i I caught the virus and but the thing is I I, I caught the virus in 2012
0: so okay you got to tell a story though, right so before the show we were talking and I, I actually didn't know this uh so as everybody knows I, I've been using this tagline the virus is spreading for a while now and, and the thought process was um the idea of crypto was going viral right and people were as they learned about it they would tell their friends and it just kind of continued to uh permeate through society but you said that uh the word virus is not new to crypto and no, so maybe tell I, that
1: story I I'm shocked when I when I first saw you tweeting about, you know, the the virus is spreading. I assumed you were referring to what we always used to say back in 2013, which were 2012, for that matter, that Bitcoin is the mind virus. Once you once you catch it, it's actually tough to stop thinking about it, not just because, um, you know, it's an amazing invention and and, and has and is filled with so much possibility and power, but also because it starts to make you question things that you always sort of held as as obvious, as axiomatic. Um, and that's one of the one of the great things about being a lawyer in this space is you um, you get to revisit first principles. Mm -hmm. Most lawyers don't get to do that. They sit behind a desk and like securitize the same (laughs) asset over and over again, or they litigate the same kind of case over and over again. Um, And we got to make people think about money in a way that they never did before. I mean, I'd I'd consider it a victory to get people to think about something in a way that they never really did before. Um, And Bitcoin did that for all of us. Yeah, it's fun. It is. It's a blast, right. especially, again, for lawyers who aren't really known for having fun jobs. <laughs> it's not like suits. Yeah,
2: it's
0: not like suits. Um, all right. So, so you're uh, there, you, you get the, uh, the mind virus or the virus spreads to you and, and you leave. Um, and so talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing at blockchain
1: today. today. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I worked with a lot of different uh, crypto companies over the over my years in private practice. Um, and I was Im- I was impressed by a great many of them. At the end of the day, there was one that was really fighting for the things that I believed in. Individual financial freedom, taking taking ownership and control of your money. Um, and the exchanges weren't doing that, mm-hmm. especially in 2017. What we saw was the headlines start to shift toward, uh, you know, Lambos and One Moon and, and, and stuff like that. And that's that it's 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 exciting and it's and it's part of what um, has gotten a lot of people into crypto, but it wasn't for me, right? Some 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 people said uh, have said that um, Bitcoin is a is a, a tool for overthrowing oligarchs and despots wrapped up in a get in, wrapped up in a get rich quick scheme, mm-hmm. um, and that that may be the case. I don't know about overthrowing oligarchs and despots and all that, but um, I I do know that the get rich quick part of this of that story started to, um, pull so much of the narrative, um, away from why I was involved in this in the first place, which was to give people control over their finances in a way that they couldn't achieve in the traditional banking system. I mean, you know, there, there, there are people not just in this world, not just in this state, but in this zip code who can't get a bank account without being charged $15 a month. For inactivity fees, it is it is expensive, right? To be poor in this country and in much of the world, people don't use blockchain just to speculate. They don't use it to buy something for a dollar and sell it for two. Um, they use it so they can actually, they can actually, well, use crypto. So that some people use use their blockchain wallets um, at, to as 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 their primary banking source. Um, And you can and you can do that. We've we've done it and we've supported it uh, as successfully as we can over the last years to the point where now there's 30 million different wallets doing doing that. So the difference between what blockchain does and what most other exchanges, for example, do is well. You have your coins, you have your private keys. When, when, when you have coins on an exchange, for example, and you wanna send those coins, you wanna use them, you wanna do something with them. If, if, if they're tokens that run a decentralized application or it's just Bitcoin and your coins are on an exchange, what you do is exactly what you do with your bank. You say, dear bank, dear exchange, can I please, pretty please, have my money back? And, and, and you know what, send it over to Alice or Bob. Uh, and sometimes the exchange says no. That's not, that's, that's not why people use, use Bitcoin. That's not why people got into this in the first instance. Or, you, or they say, yes, but only so much. Right, yes, but only so much, right. Right, exactly. So you,
0: you can only say $25,000 a day.
1: Yep, exactly. And blockchain from the beginning was, was pure software, and it still is. Mm-hmm. We never take custody of your funds. We never take control of your funds. We give you software so that you can interact directly with the Bitcoin network. If an exchange gets hacked, the wallet can get emptied. If blockchain gets hacked, we don't have your money. Mm-hmm. That's that's the difference. You can store the very same coins in a blockchain wallet at the very same time they are being stored in any number of any of other industry standard software wallets, and spend them out from underneath it. Mm-hmm. That is that is that is self custody. That's what it means to have control and power over your own money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of the point, right? So when I when I had uh, the choice of which which company to go to to, to to really drive this forward. I chose the one that really instantiates the values that I hold dear.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny, I, I've got uh, a funny euph- uh, euphemism, and then I've got a serious one, but I, I say that uh, most of our parents grew up with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. And, uh, and we grew up with Lambos and moons. <laughs> so when you kind of think of that, like, <laughs> I don't know who's uh, who's winning on that uh, trade. Yeah, um, that's But, but, that's but I do one. think the other thing, um, you know, look, we, we've uh, we, we've gone around the country and, and we've been talking to everyone from institutional investors down to family offices, high net worth individuals, um, and just kind of general what I would consider the retail investors of crypto. And we hold these events and um, in these different cities. And, and the thing that's always struck me, like when people ask me, what's the most surprising thing throughout all of those conversations with? different people. It's how many people actually believe and question the very kind of core elements of crypto, right? So they don't trust the traditional banking system. They have questions about the fiat currency system or the Federal Reserve, right? All of these elements that I think um, they're a little scary to think about at first, right? And and they're probably not uh, the first thing that you're going to go and publicly talk about until you're really comfortable with your own thoughts, with your own opinions. Um, you've had enough conversations. Um, but but it's always shocked me at how many people have the exact same feelings that you just described, where you had your pick to go to all these companies and you end up being attracted to the one where it really is about financial freedom. It really is about, you know, a, a different system or an alternative system giving people
1: choice. Yeah. And so I talk to investors, actually, about this all the time, not not people who invest in crypto, uh, but I talk to like venture capitalists, for yep. example, all the time. And they say, well, What's the difference between you and the big exchanges out there? Like why why should we invest in you and not to make exchanges? And you know, in my opinion that sometimes those big exchanges are good investments. Um, but there's a there's a market difference in our customer base versus theirs. Mm-hmm. Their customers go there to take their dollars and turn them into more dollars. Put dollars in, there's a ticker that goes up and down, you take your dollars out. Mm-hmm people don't come to blockchain to do that. People come to blockchain to use their money. We provide liquidity services. We just launched Lockbox and Swap, which is a little bit, it's actually nothing like Netflix and chill, but it, (laughs) it sounds like it, it's a lot less fun than Netflix and chill, but it does mean that you can actually hold your own crypto in a hardware wallet. Um, and when you want to move between cryptos, you can swap between cryptos. Uh, we do offer liquidity services, but at the end of the day, people don't come to blockchain so that they can speculate. They come mm-hmm. to blockchain so that they can use crypto. And that's and that's that's part of what our airdrops program is all about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the other piece too is I think uh, at least when we talk with folks who are a little bit older... Um, You know, from an age perspective They're shocked when I start to describe You know, there's a demographic of people um, You know, younger people who They've got double digit Maybe mid-double digit or higher Percentages of their net worth in digital assets Right? And to them it's Not risky, right? It, It is of course, there's going to be digital money, digital stores of value. Um, of course, I'm going to have a digital wallet and, and you know, kind of have this uh, hybrid between a bank account and, or a brokerage account and you know, all this kind of stuff that I think is new and, and different and possibly scary to people who, one, don't understand it or two, grew up just having it beaten into their head that the fiat system and the traditional legacy banking system is just the way it is. Um, and, and so I think the work that you guys are doing is you're really empowering that generation of people who believe something different to actually, uh, interact with the technology in a way that keeps them in power, but, but also, um, reduces some of the risk of doing it right in terms of the security and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's, 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 that's the way that we see it too. I mean, we, 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 we could have taken the company, I think. Um, I say we, I, I joined in February, but I've been the company's lawyer for the last four years. And I, you know, the, the company could have gone in any number of different directions but they stayed the course in 2015 when nobody was talking about public blockchains and bitcoins and everybody was talking about DLT do you remember DLT (laughs) distributed ledger technology is the term that the banks had come up with to sanitize crypto as much as they could to try to get uh to try to get their boards on board um but even back when people were thinking about um We're talking about DLT. Blockchain never started doing proofs of concept with banks. We never, that wasn't us. That's just not the vision that we had and it's not the vision that we have today.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Well, look, it it is, uh, the user base speaks for itself, right? Um, Let me ask you this question. What do you think, um, and I've never asked anybody this, uh, but I think you've kind of, your perspective is very different and and, um, you were kind of an outsider that was friendly to the company for a while and now are, are an insider. What would you say is the most legitimate criticism people have of that approach, right? So while everyone else is out working with the banks and the legacy system, and and they're all trying to jockey for um, different kind of advantages or or, or ways to get ahead, you guys stayed the course. And so there's obviously people who are going to disagree with that approach. What's the most legitimate criticism of that?
1: I think that the the legitimate criticisms come from timescale. They say so when I say, hey, when people ask me when is blockchain going to have um, when, when is the man on the street going to have a blockchain wallet just as um, ju- just as surely as they have a cell phone right mm-hmm. I give them a long time scale um, and that's because it's actually difficult in this country to explain to people that you know the, the benefits of having control having self having user controlled wallets Some people think it's risky some people think that um it's just not a job that they want to do you know what at the end of the day i have a bank account Mm -hmm. you know i have a credit card i respect that i don't i don't i don't want to do that work myself um but you know that's just here that's just the us blockchain isn't even a us company right that's what most people don't realize blockchain was founded in not new york but york Right. We this 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 is a very, very old and very international company. We, we were not U.S. first. And you'll be surprised to learn how much even after the events of 2008, you still trust your bank. You still walk up there. You still give them your money every day. Um, and you ask them pretty please, can I take it out? And I asked the same thing, you know, I, I do the same thing, but in many parts of the world, that is, that is not the case. And it shows in our numbers. We, we, we have plenty of users in the United States, but a couple of months ago, I was, I was, I was, um, uh, the management team shared metrics with me and it, and we had signed on more users from Kenya, uh, that month than we had, um, from Texas. And, you see that happen occasionally because people in the rest of the world, well, their banks have not been good stewards of their money. Um, mm-hmm. And you could argue that's happened here in the United States, too, where our money is worth less and less every day. But by and large, uh, we've done our, our government has actually done a very good job compared to most of the world. Um, so it's why the company decided that it was not going to be uh, why the company decided it had to have an international first approach.
0: Yeah, what you're describing is this, uh, you know, good gets in the way of great, right? And and the U.S. banking system is good enough for a majority of people to do a majority of the things that they want to do, right? And so, you know, how many people have their, uh, their wealth devalued away in the United States financial system? Very little, right? How many people have their capital seized or their wealth seized? Very little, right? How many people want to move money and can't do it or the bank, you know, restricts them from doing it, not very many, right? And so because the financial system is good enough and there's just enough infrastructure that people can get by with it, I think they become complacent, right? Well, and they don't want to
1: aspire for the great thing that could be possible um, that the some of the other technology brings. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a uniquely American thing, mm-hmm. but um, it, is, uh, it is amplified here in, in the United States and Western Europe. Uh, places where people have sound money mm-hmm. uh, relative to the rest of the world, right? Yeah. You use that phrase "sound money," and the and the Bitcoin uh, maximalists start to say well, the U.S. doesn't have sound money. And well, I mean, on a relative scale, maybe gold is the only thing that's truly pure, right? But um, I, I certainly don't feel that way. I'm, I, I don't count myself among them. Um, but then you look at places like um, Japan, which. Um, yeah, the money has not been spectacular there, but they have so many different kinds of payment systems. And adoption has been so much quicker there uh, for things like contactless, cardless uh, payments. Um, the rest of the world is a big place. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: and you know, look, we saw this in African countries, right? I, I talk a lot about this idea that um, citizens of African countries had no banking infrastructure maybe 20 years ago, and they uh, leapfrogged the U.S. when it came to mobile banking. Right? It was just because they had nothing. And so all of a sudden I can text you money, yeah. right? It, it just became um, very popular. Yeah, and so, like,
1: like landlines. Landline phones, right? It was just a, st- a stage they skipped.
0: Yep. And so I think that we're seeing some of that with this decentralized kind of open finance or, or, or you know, user first type financial products um, in other parts of the world, right? And some, you know, the classic examples are the Venezuelas, Argentinas, in the world, etc. But I think this is happening in Africa. I think it's happening across Asia. Um, it's just places where they don't have good enough infrastructure. And so they go from, you know, very bad to great infrastructure. It's um, still going to take some time. Um, but but in some ways they they're lucky that they're not distracted by the good enough infrastructure yep right all right, um, all right so, so let's get back to blockchain real quick uh, let's talk about um, airdrops right so uh, obviously blockchain and um, the securities world finance etc the traditional markets are pretty well understood there's been plenty of time plenty of smart people who have looked at all this stuff but the blockchain ecosystem and crypto specifically bring quite a number of nuances right so these airdrops hard forks. What is the company blockchain, right? How do you guys look at that and then talk about this airdrop program that you guys created? Because I think it's a pretty new um, and and nuanced thing that's pretty powerful.
1: Well, blockchain serves as the on-ramp for millions and millions of people all around the world. Um, One of the difficult things about getting into crypto is getting crypto. Right? You have to you have to sign on to an exchange that might lose your money um, You have to buy it in a, some shady ICO you have to mine it, which is difficult Or you can be like me and I actually earned my first crypto actually like I accepted it for legal fees But let me tell you that's hard Actually doing work for stuff. is, is, is sometimes really hard. So we thought look there 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 can be a better way um, and as you can tell for the theme of this, I've actually dedicated a lot of my time to try to figure out um, better ways to crypto adoption. We did that with the SAFT project white paper. We tried to set ICOs aside and say there could be a better way. And, and this, is another, this, is, this is another way to do it. If you want to invent uh, the next Bitcoin or the next Ethereum or the next, the bigger and better thing, uh, the bigger and better crypto network, you're a creator. Well, at first, you've got a bunch of crypto and you want people to use it. One necessary but not sufficient uh, qualification uh, requirement for getting people to use it is them actually having it. Um, so what an airdrop can do and is, is put crypto in the hands of many people. Uh, it can take crypto out of the hands of just a few, usually a few creators, and put it in the hands of many people. The way that happens is that, well, remember I said with blockchain, you have our, our users, anybody with a blockchain wallet actually has the private keys to their crypto. They are the ones who are in control of it, not some bank or intermediary financial institution. So in an airdrop, that creator takes the crypto and gives it away for free. Mm-hmm. And if they do it through blockchain, they certainly don't pay us any of it. We don't keep any of it. We don't charge listing fees or anything. Um, every uh, every. Every piece of crypto we get, we give to our users. We work for our users. Um, And we did our, we published a a set of guiding principles on airdrops. You can read that on our website at blockchain.com. It's easy to remember. You can read uh, the guiding principles there. Uh, And today, uh, we actually announced our first, our very first airdrop, our very first uh, implementation of those guiding principles. We're airdropping um, something called Stellar, Stellar XLM. Um, we're, we're giving it away for free to our users. Um, and it's all, it's all starting now.
0: All right. So let's back up for a second. So the airdrops are merely the creators, you know, in an overgeneralized world. The creators are giving away um, these crypto assets, right, to everyone else. Sometimes it's to incentivize them to participate in a network. Sometimes it's money. It could be a whole bunch of different use cases, but it's a giveaway to some degree for free. Why would they do that? Right. What, what is a the great what, what is the creator's benefit in giving something away for what appears
1: to be free? This is a uniquely a uniquely crypto element. Virtual currencies benefit from network effects. Mm-hmm. The more people that actually have and use a particular coin, the more valuable each particular coin is. Not in terms of sticker price but in t- or sticker uh sorry stock ticker value but in terms of actual functionality if you have a dollar and i don't accept dollars all i accept is yen and no one around you no one around you accepts dollars that dollar is well it's not very functional is it it has no utility if i accept dollars and you accept dollars that dollar becomes marginally more useful because you might be able to pay me with it but i mean why do i even accept dollars if some third person over here across the room isn't going to accept it from me right so the more people that the more the, the more people that actually use these things the more people that want to use them in commerce and know how to use them in commerce and have experience using them in commerce um, the more valuable they are so if you're a crypto creator you can benefit from these network effects that drive the adoption that drive the actual functional use of your token I have no idea what happens to the price in an airdrop no nobody at Blockchain really, I, th- I would assume, nobody blockchain really does, and it's not really the point anyway. This isn't for speculators. This is for people who want to get their first bit of crypto so they can settle up a tab at the bar, or pay for lunch, or settle a bet, or put in for a poker game, or do all the things that you do with money. Um, and one of the one of the nice things is that you know decentralization has become a very powerful thing, mm-hmm. and when just a few people have. A particular crypto, it's not very decentralized. Um, Airdrops, blockchain airdrops can be a tool to drive decentralization because each of our users has a private key. Yeah, it,
0: it's interesting. I, I wrote about this today. It's this debate between decentralization and centralization, right? And I think that uh, the crypto um, community, especially on Twitter and stuff, uh, whenever something happens, everyone's like, you know, decentralize it, decentralize it, and they, and they start screaming about it. And the point I was trying to make um, when I was writing this was, look, centralization is not inherently bad. Right, and I would actually argue that many of the most popular internet companies of today would not be as successful as they are if they hadn't been decentralized when they started. Hmm. Right, so there was no ICOs, there was no cryptocurrency, there was no airdrop, all of these elements did not exist. And so you needed a centralized team with a centralized focus, a centralized office, all these things to build the initial network effect that then grew, right, so you look at a Facebook, a Twitter, you know, Google, et cetera. Today, actually, a lot of these projects are starting out with some sort of centralized organization, right? And and not organization as an illegal entity, but there's a group of people that come together and they're organizing themselves and their resources to create something. And then what decentralization is really kind of uh, proliferating as is their ability to go from Highly centralized to quickly dissipate out or, or, or distribute out their resources and, and, and their workload to as many people as possible. Right. And so it's almost like there's a spectrum and, and they start out in somewhat of a centralized manner because you've got to organize those resources, you got to organize ideas, you got to build something. And then as quickly as you can, if you can decentralize yourself and your organization, that's where value is accruing. Right. Yeah. What do you think about
1: that? Well, I think that so a decentralization has acquired this sort of talismanic power in the industry, um, somewhat for good reason, somewhat for good reason. Um, It's a term of art in the law now. In fact, uh, decentralized convertible virtual currencies, as uh, the Department of the Treasury categorizes Bitcoin, um, have different regulatory uh, overhead, in fact, much lower regulatory overhead than centralized convertible virtual currency systems like PayPal. Interesting. A, right. Centralized convertible virtual currency system. Uh, Bitcoin is a decentralized convertible virtual currency system. There is a money transmitter. There must be a money transmitter who requires licenses, who requires um, uh, registration, a chief compliance officer, an AML policy, KYC, et cetera. This was the kind of law that I practiced, right? Um, at, at PayPal, there has to be one of those. But at Bitcoin, well... There's no Bitcoin Inc., right? There's nobody to do that because it is sufficiently decentralized. So, in in the money services law, decentralization there's a, there's a very good reason why it's become talismanic because it is now a term of art. Interesting. And it's the same way we just we just saw uh, the the director of the division of corporation finance at SEC, um, Bill Hinman. He said, "Look, there's there's actually kind of a a set of traps you can run on your." On your offering to tell whether it's a security and what is the bar called? What is the line called? Decentralization. Is your uh, network decentralized enough? Is it sufficiently des- decentralized to not be a security? Um, and so, not only in the money services law, but in the context of the securities law, if the if the network is decentralized, then um, it is it is less likely, or maybe just not, um, a security. So um, the power of an airdrop, uh, of at least the way of a blockchain airdrop, the way that we do it is that it can really drive those effects. It can drive those decentralization effects, those network effects. So that if you're a crypto creator, um, this is something that you should be really attractive. A bunch of people who really don't have a whole lot of incentive to speculate on your your currency or or your coin or whatever it is, but um, have a lot of tools available to use it. That's, that's, that's the power that that we see in it.
0: Let's say that airdrops become the de facto way to bootstrap network effects, right? And so creators are building product services, companies, networks, et cetera, that they're going to use these airdrops to distribute um, some sort of asset and, and really get people to use it, right? Does it become saturated at some point? Right. Every day I'm receiving a new airdrop and I don't know, you know, Monday from Tuesday. And and now all of a sudden I've just got all this what looks like free money or, you know, <laughs> kind of spam email. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Are, are you worried that we get into a world where um, there's not enough kind of skin in the game maybe for the users? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and it's too frictionless. Or do you think that kind of the best projects rise to the top and, and, and users will be attracted to, to just. Understand that and kind of buy into those network effects.
1: I think that's a really good point, and it's something that we've struggled with um, at blockchain. Sort of, it. what is the macro consequence mm-hmm. if this really catches on? It's something that we struggled with for the Saft project framework too, right? One of the consequences is that well, maybe people can't do ICOs anymore if this thing really if this thing really picks up. Yeah. Um, and with regard to airdrops, like we're not trying to kill anything with airdrops, or, 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 or even become a market standard for that matter, but what um what what we have done is well a little bit of curation right i I don't think we foresee this as um, a tool as I don't think we foresee this as um, uh, every day some weird worthless new piece of spam hits your wallet because we have to do integration work right yeah. first, first of all, there's a limiting factor, but also we uh have users that really, you know, most of them have never heard of an ERC 20 token, right? Most of them don't know about ICOs. They just think this is this might be a better way to use their money. Uh, And so it's 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 should come as no surprise that we started off with something that we believe to be a high quality asset, something that we think um, can be good money, uh, something that um, is built to scale, that works even when there's millions of people using a network at the same time. Um, something that you can actually create cool things with. You can build assets on top of Stellar. Um, I I don't see us doing this for every project that comes along the mm-hmm. way, right? This is this is not like a, a tool for like revenue generation for us. We like I said we don't we don't take any listing fees, so we're not just trying to like jam a bunch of crypto down our you know down our users throat. At the same time, we do want this to be a platform for discovery so that if you don't know a whole lot about crypto, but you know that everybody that you trust and respect has said this stuff is amazing, you can open a blockchain wallet and occasionally you'll find something new and exciting in it that you can use. Really, you can really functionally use it um, and give it a try.
0: Yeah. I mean, to some degree, right, people will associate the quality of blockchain, the company with the quality of the things that get through right and get airdropped to them et cetera. and so um there's a little bit of um you guys need to pay attention to that yeah right
1: um okay so w- let's switch gears a little bit and talk I, a- I will make one final point on that go ahead and that's that if every single coin we airdrop ends up being like a high quality asset that everybody uses every day we'll know we've failed we,
2: okay we Why? Get,
1: it means we haven't pushed the envelope We're not we're like this company doesn't exist so that um, we so that people uh, don't experience anything new and and have to think out and never have to think outside of the box and never get confronted with something that changes the way they think about money. This company exists to push that envelope. Mm -hmm. And so if we never deliver even one token, then even one coin that doesn't really take off. Well, no, we played it too safe.
0: Yeah, I think it's super interesting and, and um, very similar to the way venture capitalists think, right? If none of the companies go to zero, you actually failed. There you go. Right. Um, all right, let's switch gears and talk about uh, asset tokenization, right? So I think that um, you, you've you really helped and been um, kind of an uh, integral part of uh, these crypto entrepreneurs funding um Network growth and, and, and these decentralized organizations and, and a whole bunch of stuff there. Um, I think what's become a popular narrative, right? Um, you know, we we are, uh, are are big proponents of it ourselves. Is um, taking assets, uh, stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities and digitizing them or, or, or tokenizing them onto blockchains. What's your personal view on you know that market? How it will, if at all, um, kind of grow and, and where we're going there.
1: Um, this is a great uh, other side of the coin from what we were talking n- about. No pun intended. Well, it's actually a bad expression. It's, 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 it's a great uh, foil. It's a great whatever. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the opposite. I'm not. I'm just a lawyer. I'm not. I'm not good with words. The um, So what, what you're talking about, as opposed to uh, cryptocurrencies and utility tokens, Um, is tokenized securities, right? They are investment products that are intended to be investment products. It's not a question of, oh golly, is this gonna pass the Howey test? No, we know the thing is a security It was always intended to be one, except instead of writing it into um, Carta or writing it into uh, a MySQL database or onto a stock certificate, we wrote it into a smart contract on a blockchain. Um, Those things are tokenized securities. They don't benefit from network effects in as much as they are tokenized securities. We see some weird hybrid things out there, um, but so much as they're just meant to represent a share in a company, it doesn't matter how many people use the network that represents the share in the company, right? The value doesn't come from the network. It comes from uh, the performance of the issuer yep.
2: um,
1: and the efforts of the issuer, right? To, to use the Howie language. Um, I think those are powerful for a different reason. And what we're going to see is that in, in, in my Opinion: What what we'll probably see is that the tokens uh, that really capitalize on the, the tokenized securities, I should say, that really capitalize on the blockchain infrastructure, are the ones that investors will see value in. And we're, you know, we don't airdrop those, right? We don't airdrop tokenized securities. It's 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 not part of our mission. Uh, but I did a lot of work on this um, when I was uh, in private practice. In fact, I was the um, what is it? The the blockchain ambassador to the state of Delaware in in ah. in, in connection with uh, the Delaware blockchain initiative, where we actually amended the Delaware General Corporation Law to permit or to at least clarify that corporations could use a blockchain as their uh, books and records, mm-hmm. so they could rely on the contents of a blockchain as as their books and records, which is kind of bonkers when you think about it. But that's. But That's what it but, means. So first of all, I didn't know that we had a
0: Delaware state law celebrity in here. We'll have to get a, <laughs> we'll have to an <laughs> autograph later. <laughs> but but you said it's bonkers, right? And, and, and I would push back on that in the sense of today, the books and records are uh, usually kept by the company. They're periodically audited by some third party. Um, and external parties, so you know, investors, uh, analysts, researchers, uh, the general public, make decisions based on a couple of things. One, the information that is provided by the company, which is usually dictated by some sort of law or, or uh, regulatory guidance. Two, that the auditors are correctly and accurately auditing that information and, and representing it as fact. And then three is that nothing changes or or nothing material has changed since the last either uh, guidance given by the company, report given by the company or audit, right? So kind of there's no real time information. There's no kind of um, third party uh, immutable record of truth, right? All the things that we know the blockchain promises. Wouldn't it make sense, though, that if you're an external third party and you say, I trust no one, you would want that immutable record, right? You would want that those books and records held somewhere that you could self audit it, right? You didn't have to rely on other people or take on that counterparty risk.
1: Yeah, and there's a great example of that in the Dole Foods case, which is um, a piece of law. It's a, it's a decision in the Delaware uh, Chancery Court, um, back to Delaware, in the in the Delaware Chancery Court where the um, company had requests request uh, for redemptions of, uh, thousands and thousands of more shares than they actually had record owners on their books. Think
0: okay, so, it. so explain this. So Dole had given out shares or sold shares in the company, whatever the number was, and they wrote that down in their books and records saying, you know, 10,000, right? They had given out 10,000 shares that they had uh, articulated in their books and records. And at some point in the future, more than 10,000 share um, requests basically came back. And so there was a mismatch between what the books and records internally were representing versus what people were showing up to almost a run on the bank to some degree, saying, hey, give
1: us this back. How does that happen? That's right. You have to ask why. What possible scenario could lead to that? I mean, I can pay a chicken farmer using a Lightning Network payment with my Bitcoin to dispense corn feed to the chickens in Australia from New York, but Dole Foods can't keep track of how many owners it has that's crazy. Um, and in reality, in the world we live in, that's not crazy. That's how the net settlement system in the public markets of securities works. That's, that's how the system of securities entitlement works. So for example, how many people in this room uh, own uh, a, a share of publicly traded stock? Raise your hand. No, put in, there's four people in the room. It's not that much. Uh, But they all raise their hands. You don't. You actually don't. You are not the owner of that stock. There's a company called CD & Co. that that owns that stock. They are the nominee. Um, And you have a securities entitlement. You have the subordinated right to that stock. Uh, And in between you and the issuer, there are a dozen intermediaries uh, that can lose track of things.
0: And just so people really understand what you're describing here, um, would it be fair to kind of simplify... The complexity between the issuer and the individual investor who believes they own that stock, as really what they have is a lien on
1: somebody else's ownership. Of the stock, I mean, it's 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 called an entitlement, mm-hmm. right? It's you know, a lien is. You're asking a lawyer to be technical. Well, technically, it's not a lien, but the idea is that I'm, ge- I'm getting. Uh,
0: you, yeah, I'm getting the uh, Delaware State Law celebrity yeah. to uh, to give me lessons now.
1: <laughs> no, definitely, I, I I'm absolutely not not the expert. I I was I was lucky enough to be involved in this single project, but um, no, the idea is that you you have a right to what your broker has. Your broker has a right to what maybe some other broker has, who all the way up the chain has a right to um, this share that is Mm -hmm. actually owned on the books and records of the corporation by the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, technically by CD&Co, its nominee. Um, And that happened back in the the paper blizzard of the 1960s, 1970s, when um, stock, when uh, the markets had to shut down in the middle of the day, because. People just had to keep up. They had to keep up with mm-hmm. with with recording the transfer of these securities. Finally, uh, the street said, "Look, enough is enough. Let's set let's set up let's set up a new process." And there were two alternatives. One was a distributed ledger. I was just gonna say that's basically what in the seventies it's solving crazy, the right? double spend problem. It could have it could have, but the technology just wasn't there yet, right? Just mm-hmm. like with Uber, right? In the in the nineties, we we were talking about this before we got on the on. Um, on the, on the mic, but you know, back in the nineties, we'd tell our kids not to take rides from strangers. Mm-hmm. Don't get into cars with strangers. And now you literally, you pay a stranger to come pay pick, a stranger yeah. to back. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk to strangers on the internet. Don't get into rides, <laughs> Right. Because the technology changed. Yep. And, and now we have technology that actually allows, uh, that, that, that actually allows uh, people to um, all join this, distributed ledger. So you don't have to have a small group of people that are permitted to write Mm -hmm. to a ledger that are that are permitted to trade entitlements back and forth or net settle between their clients.
0: Yeah, the the uh, hyperbole statement that we usually use is, uh, you know, everyone talks about crypto and blockchain as it's risky, right? It's new, it's unproven. And uh, and we make the argument a lot of times to uh, especially older CIOs, look, this is actually less risky. Right. And let us and, and they kind of shrink back a little bit. What do you mean? How could you say that? And you start walking them through it. And and uh, because they're so deep in uh, the nuances of uh, underwriting risk and, and things like that, they actually very quickly come up to speed and they say, oh, you know what? This is very interesting. Right. A piece of technology can uh, reduce my counterparty risk. It can um, really give me true ownership of the asset. Right. And kind of what are the ramifications of that, um, I think, becomes attractive. And so it's this whole idea that they just kind of get educated.
1: Yeah, right. it, is, it, and, and it once is they get educated, educa- Once
0: they get educated, then they, they start to believe, right? And you get back to the whole the virus is spreading and, and all that stuff. Um, cool. So let me ask this. Uh, one of the things we've talked about on, on previous episodes with folks is, um, you know, as we get deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and, and talk to people across the industry, one theme that continues to emerge is what if we're actually underestimating the potential of blockchain, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency? right and i think most of us who are excited about this have, have um you know dedicated parts of our careers to working on it we have high ambitions or or uh, believe in the in the prospects of the technology what's like the farthest out or most extreme view of this industry that you could see or, or believe in
1: well you know this is this has sort of become this has sort of become hackneyed at this point but um When we think uh, when 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 the first um, Internet pioneers were were doing their work, they were they thought, oh, my gosh, we are going to be able to send a single packet of data and it's going to make its way all the way around the world one day. And I don't I don't I don't know who among them really envisioned, you know, billions of those packets of data being sent around the world uh, in I don't know the numbers in a second. I mean, we we. We, don't, we, we didn't think of that. We never understand the, the holistic impact of new technologies like this. I think that we like saying how impactful they're going to be. What, when asked for an application, this is where uh, the venture capitalists in particular are, are, you know, are, are successful because they can predict the future. Um, but most of us can't. And when I look at crypto uh, today, I see people amazed when they when they use their first bit of crypto. This is why we're giving away 25 bucks to somebody so they can just try it so they can so they can move crypto uh, around the world uh, in the blink of an eye. Um, When I when I see the the magic in people's eyes when they do that and they're shocked that it worked, I think, how shocked are they going to be when that little bit of value is no more special or unique than a packet of data that runs across the internet. And people are sending not just individuals, but machines are sending, um, are sending money, sending value around the world uh, in as frictionless and liquid a way uh, as people send uh, generic data today. I, I don't fully understand the consequences of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you can think of the sort of the, the examples uh, that are now somewhat overused. of um, The the car pulling up to the gas station and the car independently of you settling up with the gas station owner uh, in some form of cryptocurrency. Maybe it's Stellar XLM, maybe it's Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, that, that seems like a very basic example of one day, maybe we'll be able to send a packet of data all the way around the world. Who knows what life is going to be like when... Um, well, money yeah. is is being sent around in those packets. We, we,
0: we talk a lot about blockchain and crypto has to happen for automation to actually work, right? So if you think of this idea of uh, in an automated world, you're going to get machines that have to trust other machines. And so what better way to do that than in a fully transparent, machine-driven or algorithmically-driven world? Um, and so going back to asset tokenization, if you get every stock, bond, currency, and commodity that ends up being tokenized or digitized, you now unlock the potential for things that you and I probably can't even comprehend or imagine.
1: Yeah, it's like right. email is just a faster letter, right? Yep. But, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but nobody really realized that we would be, you know, how how it would uh, just fundamentally change the way that we do business. Absolutely. Um,
0: all right. So let's go into a kind of a quick round of, uh, of questions and then we'll uh, we'll end up with you asking me one question. But um, what do you think is the most important company in crypto outside of blockchain? The most important company?
1: Yeah. If you had to pick crypto. one other
0: than where you work, what's the most important company?
1: <laughs> right now? Uh, oh, gosh, that's a good question. Cloudflare. Cloudflare. OK, why? Well, they... Control what websites you get to see. <laughs> it's that simple. Mm-hmm. It's 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 true. It's truly it's truly that simple. They are the gatekeepers to the web in the same way that um, Google is the gatekeeper to email. Like there are no websites. There's just what Cloudflare stops DDoSs against. There is no email. There is just what Google allows to get through its spam filters.
0: Interesting. Uh, we we have never had anyone who uh, who has thought that way. Um, uh, so, so that's a really good one. Um, okay. What is, uh, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it and change any one regulation or improve any one regulation, what would it be? <laughs> and you, I ask everybody this question, but I'm
1: really interested in what your, uh, your opinion is. These are hard. You didn't tell me about any of these before, uh, that's before, of, uh, before, I got uh, that's on part the part of the game. <laughs> <laughs> I would, um, I would, harmonize investor protection regulations around the world. Interesting. I wouldn't know how to do it. Yep, I wouldn't know how to do it if I could snap my fingers and do it. Believe me, I I would have. Um but it's something that lawyers struggle against constantly. It's something that I know regulators struggle against constantly and entrepreneurs in this space. That is that is the one question on all of their minds is how do I actually execute this thing? I just want to do a Kickstarter like Issuance, but is it a security? Is it not?
0: And, and you're talking about each jurisdiction has different laws, protections, regulations, etc. And some of them are consistent. Some of them, yeah, aren't. They're, and they're, it they're very fragmented. They're out
1: of step. And you know, I, I've been I've been working with policymakers and regulators in cryptos since 2013. And if there's one thing I've found is that um, it is an uneven landscape. It is it is an, it is an incredibly uneven landscape. Regulators in um, And and legislators in the United Kingdom, for example, don't always even know what the law is in the Mm -hmm. United States. And part of that is because we in the United States don't even really know Mm -hmm. uh, what the law is. And it's this it's this um, it's this stutter start. It's a sort of punctuated hurry up and stop approach to creating new regulations where. One, one jurisdiction juts out ahead, but not too far, and they're a little bit wishy-washy on it, but that kind of sets a little bit of a precedent. Another jurisdiction goes out and they'll say a little bit of, you know, they'll, 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 they'll put their own take on it, but they won't commit. And then depending on what the third and fourth and fifth people do, there's some equilibrium reached. But then someone steps a little bit further, like what happened in the bit license in New York. So it's punctuated.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Two more questions. What's the one thought you have or belief in crypto that you think majority of other people would disagree with you?
1: The one thought I have in, oh, so an unpopular crypto. Exactly. An unpopular crypto opinion. Oh, wow. Um,
0: Everyone in crypto is not short on the unpopular opinions, but what's the one that you, like, really believe in that you think most other people would, would expect no way?
1: Hmm. That is a difficult one. How much hemming and hawing can I do that you'll edit out at the end of this, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so I can take a little bit. I can uh, you, I can take a think, little bit longer. You could think. Yeah. Look, the bottom line is I I feel like all I've all I've had are unpopular opinions. Uh, you, you know, people didn't like what um, uh, what we said in the SAF project framework. At least some people didn't like it, right? Because it called out a lot of people for doing things they probably shouldn't have been doing.
0: Is that the one thing that you think you've been involved in where? It felt like there was the most pushback.
1: I think that's I think that's probably fair to say. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, who knows if airdrops will be something like that? I we hope not. I mean, we're giving people free stuff to try to actually you know get into crypto for the first time and use it. Um, and the risks are pretty low there. But you know when when we published the SAF project white paper, there were a lot of people who had just done ICOs and some people whose whole business model was built on doing ICOs and they didn't they didn't take it well. Yeah. So, yeah, there were consequences.
0: Doesn't mean you're right, doesn't mean you're wrong, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. And, and so, uh, last question, not crypto-related, but uh, I'm excited to talk about this one because we've had big developments in the alien space. So I usually ask everybody... Hold um, on, wah,
1: wah, wah. what is it, that the, so if the ali- asteroid?
0: I always say, yeah, if if, uh, if aliens are real, right, do you think there's alien pets, right? We always think of aliens as like a human-like creature. No one ever talks about, are they showing up off the spaceship with uh, with? Dogs and cats, and you know other forms of life
1: that are pets. Absolutely, you there's a whole so? episode of Star Trek about this. I feel like I how am I the nerdiest person in the room? Of course, everybody, <laughs> every all all the aliens in Star Trek, mm-hmm. right? They mostly look like each other: two arms, two legs, yep. two eyes, uh, one nose. Uh, because well, life always kind of evolves in the same way, so. Yeah, of course they're going to have pets, just like we do. Now, maybe they got a little farther along the spectrum, and the pets aren't allowed on the spaceships yet. Because, hell, we don't even have spaceships. <laughs> but well, there, there you go. You got my sci-fi thought for the year. Well,
0: well. So here, here's the thing, right? I, I'm shocked at how few people are talking about uh, the spaceship. And for those that don't know, uh, the head of the astrology department at Harvard. Did you say
1: astrology? It, it, or I'm sorry. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> man, it has been a long day. Well, no, uh, no, it, well, now, it could, it could, some people probably well, yeah, think he now, is the head of the astrology department. If,
1: if he's talking about aliens, maybe, maybe Jupiter is in his third house.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, but what he came out and he said, right, was that, look, there is this, uh, I don't even know what call called, what he called interstellar object. I think is what they're calling it. Yeah. That, uh, was picked up by a bunch of telescopes and, uh, the way that it moved, it accelerated in kind of a weird way. Uh, it was shaped in a weird way. Uh, and he's basically saying, listen, this may have been some sort of uh transportation vehicle where an alien species was actually sending it to look at Earth, come near Earth, etc. Harvard professor, right? How far in the left field yeah. spectrum are we getting there with uh
1: But he's with, a, with that one? He's a professor of astrology, so I don't <laughs> I don't I don't trust him one bit. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. Um so I end each episode with uh uh, letting the guest ask me one question. What, uh, what one question do you have for me?
1: When did you open your blockchain wallet?
0: When did I open my blockchain wallet? Um, so I, I've got two answers to this. One is uh, the first thing I actually did, which in hindsight was really dumb, was uh, I actually turned on a uh, cryptocurrency mining rig first, nothing attached to it. And so we plugged it in and we, we didn't know, right? We were just like, what are we doing here? And so plugged it in. Then, okay, now we get a wallet, right? Then once you get the tokens into the wallet, um, what do you do with it? How do I go back to fiat? And so the way that I actually got into crypto was um, my, uh, my business partner and I had uh, both invested in, and he was running um, a uh, power company. And so it takes uh, car tires, it puts it into a, um, a reactor, burns the car tires, and turns it into oil, steel, carbon, and syngas. gas, right? it's a company called PRTI. And so it sells the oil and the steel as a commodity and it takes the carbon and syngas, gas, turns it into power, and uh, was supposed to sell the power into the grid. We started to learn about cryptocurrency mining. We said, hey, we've got really advantageous economics of the power, we should actually just build crypto mines. And so I had bought a rig, it in, had no clue what I was doing, right, and and uh, and kind of worked our way through the whole ecosystem. And it wasn't until like the machines, said, oh, we actually probably should capture what we're mining, right? Do that. Then once you get into the wallet, how do I get it onto an exchange? On the exchange, <laughs> how do I get into fiat, right? You know, I, I mean, literally every mistake along the way, which in hindsight makes you feel good that if you could figure it out and you're that dumb to start, like anyone can do this. Um, but that was in uh, in 2016, and uh, and I think that. Um, I'm so thankful that that's how we came across this stuff was because it was at the kind of true essence of how the blockchains work, what's the value. And and to your point, I think with these airdrops, right, it's once people experience it, right, whether it's you airdropped me something and I can use it or it's back in 2013, when you guys are sitting there doing a presentation for federal regulators saying, here's a wallet address, we're going to take some cryptocurrency, we're going to send it to a new wallet address, it's appeared in the new one, right? Just the the visual unlocking or or the experience of actually doing it, um, I I think just gets people hooked. Right. It yeah. definitely did it for me. Um, and, uh, and so him and I always get a good laugh at it. We, we still got a picture. That's pretty, you know, outrageous in terms of the first minds we built and nice. things like that. Um, but yes, 2016, right on. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming. This is, uh, this is super, super helpful. And I think you've got a unique perspective. So, uh, we're, uh, we're cheering for you guys and, uh, hopefully we'll do this again. Thanks for having me. Hey guys. Thanks for listening. We're back with the CEO of Saluna, john belzier john what are you most excited about right now
2: what excites me the most is that we're really in the midst of a revolution satoshi nakamoto's paper that came out eight years ago really launched a revolution globally and the blockchain is definitely here to stay today's blockchains are predominantly seen as the core technology for cryptocurrencies among other things but in the future blockchains will do more uh, they'll be the foundation for entire new ecosystems. They will revolutionize a host of different industries around the world. And taken as a whole, these new distributed applications will form a new kind of Internet, uh, one where protocols replace companies and algorithms choose the best uh, computing backend and solutions that they can find. This new ecosystem, this new Internet, if you will, will need dedicated infrastructure to power it. And what excites me is that Saluna aims to be the key part of this infrastructure. We have the opportunity to build the next great infrastructure company to power this revolution. Thank you for taking the time. If you'd like to learn more about Saluna, please visit saluna.io